You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. I wanted to thank you for listening to this message from our teaching team, and I pray that God uses it to touch your heart. Good morning, beloved. Good morning, saints. Good morning, citizens of heaven. I'm glad you know who you are. I'm Bill Smith. I'm one of the six teachers here at New Hope Chapel. Looking around, I don't see anybody I don't recognize, so this is all just between us. I'm already in good spirits this morning. I got to worship this morning with the Lord himself by dancing with him. He took the form of a beautiful little girl in a red dress back there. I don't know if you saw us dancing together, me and Jesus. Yeah, it was awesome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so privileged to come. And we surrender ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name, we pray. Well, um, God's strength is perfected in our weakness, isn't it? So I come off of two days with this uh, stomach bug that we've had and that's why I'm sitting down today so that you don't panic if I fall over but um so I'm I'm glad to be in this place in this position where I know that I have no strength in myself so I'm trusting in the name of Jesus to be with us today we're continuing our series in Philippians today and Julie started us off last week awesome a sermon that she she gave to us and gave us a context. And if anybody's going to give us context, it's going to be Julie Coleman. We all know that, right? Context is very important. I was reminded that this morning when I walked outside and thought, oh, it's it's so warm. (laughs) Right? And I get in the car, it's 37 degrees. (laughs) It's warm in the context of 10 degrees, isn't it? So... As we we look at this letter uh, to the Philippians, as I thought about this letter, and I think about a lot of the letters that Paul wrote, uh, many of those letters seem to have some kind of instruction, maybe even chastisement, uh, pointing out errors. But Philippians doesn't seem to have that tone to it when you read through the whole letter. It seems more of a a letter of encouragement, of of thanksgiving. Um, Almost even a letter like, I know you guys might be concerned about me, but I'm doing great. And, and here's why I'm doing great. So for me, this book of Philippians, most of the verses that I hang my life on come out of Philippians. It's, it's probably the greatest book in psychology and spiritual therapy that you can read. And so she covered the first 11 verses. And today we're going to take a look at these verses here. Where Paul says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. 
The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. And so while Julie gave us an awesome context of of this book, I wanted to take a look at the context for Paul, and I want to focus a little bit on what has happened to me. Because as we know, Paul was not in Philippi when he wrote this letter. So where was he? And he was in Roman prison. So I want you to set in your mind this image of what it would look like. What's Paul's situation there? Okay, as we move forward. So I want to uh, go back into the book of Acts, which describes all of what's happening to Paul. And uh, we're going to end up in the 22nd uh, chapter, but I want to actually go back to when Paul arrived in Philippi. And Paul arrived in Philippi in Acts 16 or I guess in the year 49, but I think of it as he showed up in Acts 16 in, in Philippi. and He founded the church there on a second missionary journey. And I encourage you to read that story because he has a vision in the night of a man of Macedonia standing and asking Paul to come over and help them, and Paul responds, and well, you should read the story for yourself. You see, that's what we do here at New Hope Chapel. We read the scriptures. We read God's word. It's fun. It's exhilarating. It's cleansing. It clears the mind. It empowers the spirit. It's healing. And during Paul's visit to Philippi, he, he's there several days, and when the Sabbath came, he went down to the river to worship because there weren't apparently enough Jews there for there to be a synagogue. And so he goes down there because there would be water for ritual purification, and also maybe there were some other Jews there, and there were, there were a group of women. And Paul went and talked to them, which is a signal that something has really happened to this Jew of Jews who went and talked to a group of women because in his prayer life he probably wouldn't have done that. And so he meets this one woman, as he's speaking to them, this one woman, and her name is Lydia, and it says, and the Lord opened her heart, and she was a seller of purple cloth. And and she was so moved by what Paul had to say, and she gave her the life to the Lord, and she implored Paul and his companions to come stay with her. She was doing rather well in the purple cloth business, that she could support his, his group. And so he stays there, and this church in Philippi is, is founded by Paul, but on, upon the faith of the woman, Lydia. And that's how this church gets started. By the way, while Paul's there, he also cast out a spirit of divination from a slave girl, and because of that, he gets beaten and thrown into prison in Philippi. I'm going to see this as a theme here, that Paul gets in a lot of trouble as he goes throughout his travels. And so then he goes on to Thessalonica, and he creates an uproar there, arguing with the Jews in the Sabbath on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And then he goes to Berea, and he gets a different reception there in Berea. And the Jews receive him there, and they check out everything he has to say. Oops, we went too far uh, in the Word of God. But then the Jews from Thessalonica hear about this, and they get upset. So they come to Berea, and they create a bunch of more trouble for Paul. And so they're so concerned about Paul's life that uh, they send him off to Athens by himself, and he has to wait there in Athens uh, for the rest of his crew. 
And so while he's sitting there in Athens waiting, he sees all kinds of idols and he becomes distressed. A lot of these idols have an inscription on them to an unknown God. And so Paul, being Paul, stands up to talk. Now we think about this as a new context for Paul to speak because his habit was to go on the Sabbath to the synagogue and teaches, but now he's teaching in a new venue. There's nobody there to argue with. There's not the Jews there, they're the Greeks. And so that's why he stands up and he starts out with a compliment instead of arguing. He says, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. And he begins to preach the word of God to them. And some are receptive, but some begin to scoff when he starts talking about the resurrection of the dead. Others keep an open mind and want to come back and hear more. And then he goes off to Corinth, and he argues with the Jews again from Scripture every Sabbath, and the Jews there oppose him and they revile him, so he shakes the dust from his garments, and he said he's had it with the Jews and he's going to go to the Gentiles. But the Lord urges him to stay there anyway, and so he does stay there. But eventually the envy builds, and the Jews make a united attack on Paul before the tribunal. And in much the same way Jesus was tried, uh, the case there is dismissed because the judge didn't want to rule on matters of their religion. And so Paul visits a number of other places, and in some cases to visit churches he started on a previous journey, and others to start new churches. And then he gets to Ephesus. And when he gets to Ephesus, another rivalry occurs. This time a riot breaks out in Ephesus, but it's not because of the Jews. It's because of the silversmiths who made statues to a god Artemis. And because of Paul's work there in Ephesus and his preaching, all the sales for the statue of the god of of Artemis start to drop off, both online and through QBC and in the stores. (laughs) We might consider this to be the first economic impact that the church has on a community. So we fast forward through a number of cities that Paul ends up in Jerusalem. And I really encourage you, if you're looking for a good read, read this book of Acts, of all the things that Paul goes through. And he's on his way to Jerusalem, much to the consternation of his followers, because while he's preparing to do this, a prophetess shows up and indicates that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he will be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. And Paul plays them off, and he says he's ready not only to be bound, but he's ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now let's read that carefully. Paul is ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Not for Jesus himself, just for the name. The name of Jesus in and of itself is of utmost importance to Paul. And you'll find this notion in several other books. Read First John, for example, and you'll see in a lot of places just the name of Jesus itself is important. So Paul is in the temple and he's once again, you'll never guess what he's doing there. He's arguing with the Jews again. He's stirring things up. That's not what his goal was, but that's what would naturally happen. And they get so upset with Paul that they drag him out of the temple and they begin beating him with the intent to kill him. Well, this gets posted on Facebook right away. (laughs) And the Tribune and and the soldiers show up and the crowds disperse. And so now we're in Acts 22 and the Tribune who has 10 centurions working for him. They each have 100 men, so the tribune has 1,000 soldiers underneath him. And uh, they take him into the barracks for interrogation. Now, when I say interrogation, you need to hear the word flogging. That's how they interrogated people. 
And, and Paul, while he's being bound, he asks a simple question to the centurion who's standing by. He asks if it's legal to flog a Roman without condemnation. And you see, Paul understands the privilege of citizenship. And so what happens next is this becomes of concern and to the centurion. And so he goes to the tribune and says, we need to stop these proceedings because we have a problem here. And so the, the tribune decides to examine Paul about his citizenship. And when Paul indicates he is a Roman citizen, the tribune, possibly questioning the veracity of Paul's claim, says, well, it cost me a large sum of money to get my citizenship. Paul probably didn't look like someone who could afford to do this. And so Paul responds, yeah, that's nice, but I was born a citizen. And you see, being born a citizen is higher than buying your way in. And so we see that the tribune knows the value of citizenship, that it really comes in second to those who are born into it. And you know, to this day, some people come to know the, know the Lord and yet continue to attempt to buy their citizenship through good works. But you need to remember something, beloved, that Jesus already paid for our citizenship. You're already in. And he paid way more than the tribune paid. For his citizenship. And so it's my prayer that you already know that you have obtained your citizenship in Christ, not from your works. You see, Paul knows how to think like a Roman because he's a Roman citizen. He knows how to act like a Roman citizen. And so becoming fearful, the tribune orders the chief priests and the entire council to meet. He had that kind of authority to order them, and I bet you that irritated them. And so now Paul stands before the entire council of Jews, and he just starts speaking. I'm starting to think Paul might have been a bit of an extrovert. He just started speaking. And when he does, the high priest orders those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. This is such a bully tactic, isn't it? To strike him on the mouth. As many of you know, I practice martial arts, I teach martial arts, and Every once in a while, we talk about being in a situation where if a bully comes at you, they'll never come straight at you. It's always going to be from the side where you least expect it. And so they're bullying Paul. I love the search YouTube using the words wrong guy as the search term. Because you'll find a bunch of videos where the bully has picked on the wrong guy. <laughs> and I get some kind of delight for some reason of watching... <laughs> The tables turn on the bully, and then Mr. Tough Guy is now crying, and usually in a heap, and usually with some broken bones. I get some sick satisfaction out of that. I don't know why. The high priest is picking on the wrong guy here. And so Paul is also not only a citizen of Rome, he's a citizen of Israel. He's a Hebrew among Hebrews, and he knows his rights here as well. And he responds by saying, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting there to judge me according to the law, yet in violation of the law you order me to be struck? So he points out the contradiction. You're going to judge me by the law, and yet you yourself violate the law when you order me to be struck. See, unfortunately, they've set up a system where the leader is not held accountable by anyone. But Paul is going to hold him accountable. You know, every church leader who has gone astray in our times 
It has happened when there's really no true accountability. The leaders become the authority and no one challenges them. This list, unfortunately, is rather long. From most recently with Mark Driscoll and Jim Baker, Jimmy Swagger, Ted Hager, and most recently the bishop from the Maryland Episcopal Church, the state's second-ranked clergy member, accused of DUI, manslaughter, and leaving the scene of an accident. Although she did come back, but the kicker here is this. This was not her first DUI. Her first was prior to becoming a bishop. Some people like to think of themselves as movers and shakers, and therefore they might preach the gospel for that purpose. However, to be a mover and shaker in the kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with prestige or money or talent or how many connections you have. It has nothing to do with your ability to cajole or intimidate others into action. To be a mover and shaker in the kingdom of heaven, one must first be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that's one of the things I like about this church, is we all lead together. No one's above or below anybody else. We're all ministers of the gospel. You know, sometimes it's a good idea to remember what kingdom we belong to. Then Paul notices that there are Sadducees and Pharisees on the high council, and he's also a citizen of the Pharisees. And he knows how they think, and he announces his citizenship. He says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. See, all those years of stirring people up has served Paul well. Of course, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, which is why they were sad, you see. In fact, the scriptures tell us they didn't believe in angels or spirit, and the Pharisees believed in all three. Well, this launched a great noise and division, and the Pharisees declare Paul innocent. You can hear it in their theology. They stand up and say, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And then things got really violent. You know, I'm really glad that I can come to a church without fear that maybe a physical fight may break out in the middle of the service. But back then, apparently, this was something that could happen, where people start throwing things and... The, the, the tribune is, is now called once again, and he has to rescue Paul before he's torn to pieces. But you know, the citizens of the kingdom of God sometimes cause division. Now, hopefully not among ourselves, but definitely in the community where evil tries to take a stronghold. And what happens next is there's over 40 Jews who conspire to kill Paul and even take an oath to neither eat or drink until they've killed him. Well, the tribune learns of this, and he orders over, two, over 470 of his soldiers to take Paul to Rome to a guy named Felix, the governor there, with a letter explaining the situation, emphasizing the Jews were attempting to kill a Roman citizen without even a charge that would deserve a death penalty. Well, the trial occurs, and Felix hears the accusations, and then he hears Paul's defense, You know, and really, aside from the life and death situation here, this must have been for Felix like it is for us when our kids start arguing about who stole whose crayon. Really, this is what you want us to solve right now? And Felix just thinks this is, you know, give me a break. So he decides to wait for the tribune to come and also give his testimony. Now, 
at one point I wanted to do this whole sermon just from the point of this poor tribune and what a bad day he has. And it starts out when he comes home and slumps on the couch. Because if you look at this from his perspective, it's just a series of, I was just trying to do my job. I was trying to make sure all the paperwork was done and there's all these problems and I have to go to Rome now. This is creating a big struggle for him. And he's about to dismiss this whole thing until Paul mentions something. Paul mentions something called the way. And he mentions this trial is really about the resurrection from the dead. Now, the governor, Felix, was quite well informed about the way, and he immediately adjourns the meeting. And what he does next is he orders the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So Paul is really under house arrest. And we know one of those friends would have been Timothy. And he's, he's really, this is the prison he's in. So I'm just curious how many of you now are starting to change the image you created a little while ago, that Paul isn't in some dank dungeon somewhere. He has quite a bit of freedom not to leave, but for others to come and go. And that's what's going on here in this situation. He lives there for two years and a new governor takes over and he wants, this new governor wants to grant the Jews a favor. And so he leaves Paul in prison. Now, of course, the Jews must have thought they had shut Paul down, but in reality, they played right into God's hands. Because you see, it says in Proverbs 16, we may make our plans, but God has the final word. You may think everything you do is right, but the Lord judges your motives. And so, see, had Paul not been imprisoned in the manner in which Jesus had imprisoned him, yeah, that's right, I just said, Jesus imprisoned him. See, the Jews didn't imprison Paul. Felix didn't imprison Paul. Jesus imprisoned Paul. Whatever situation you're in right now, they didn't do it to you. Jesus is allowing this to happen to you in your life for your good because had Paul not been imprisoned, then we might not have the book, this book or Ephesians or Colossians or Philemon. You see, sometimes God slows us down to speed us up. So whatever obstacles might come into your life, whatever support you think God has removed from you, it's for a result that he's trying to get. And he will use whatever process he wants to get the result he's trying to get. You see, we could ask God, why did you let them grab Paul like that? He was doing such a great job for you. I don't like this process you're using here with Paul. And God says, but wait till you see the results that I'm going to get. So now, as we look at this letter to the Philippians, and this passage in particular, we can do so in the light of what Paul has been experiencing and what he's been learning. He has witnessed firsthand much rivalry, self-centeredness, envy, selfish ambition. He has seen rivalry between the Romans and between the Jews, between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, between himself and the leaders of the synagogue. He's seen envy on the part of the Jewish leaders towards his ministry. You know, rivalry and envy go hand in hand. People tend to get into rivalry with people they envy. This envy is not the sole domain of the Romans and the Jews. It also existed, and in some cases, unfortunately, still exists among the Christians. When Paul sees this in the church, he sees the saints reproducing what the world already offers. And he wants to show us how to react to it as a citizen of heaven. And we're going to read later in Philippians 3 where Paul says he has the Roman citizenship, the Hebrew citizenship, the Pharisaical citizenship, and he's going to say, I count all that as 
lost to the citizenship I have as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's showing us what he's learned about how to react to difficulty and how to think about others' motives. Most of all, Paul is showing us what's important above everything else. We can get involved in the fray, or we can rise above the fray where we are seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father already. Paul is telling us how important the name of Jesus is above everything else. Jesus, even the name of Jesus, is more important than your theology. His name is more important than your title, than your job, your marriage, your family, your reputation, your body, your house, your car, even your Audi. He's more important than your bank account. I think some of us get bothered by this passage a little bit because of something Machiavelli wrote. He said, the ends justify the means, and this quote really got to be mistaken about its is, it's, as long as you're getting a good result, then you can do anything unethical or immoral, and it doesn't matter as long as you get a good result. And this is why a lot of companies use this as a way to justify uh, uh, increasing their bottom line by, by treating employees poorly or even the environment poorly because it increased their bottom line. And it did for a short period of time, but in the long run, it became catastrophic. Back in the early 80s, when companies found out if they decreased their payroll, their profit margin went up. But in the, in the early 90s, they wondered where all their customers went, and the answer was, you laid them all off. <laughs> They're not working for you anymore. But we can find situations where the ends do justify the means. For example, in the Civil War, in order to save a man's life, the, the end, the means would be to do amputation without anesthesia. <laughs> and the ends there did justify the means. So sometimes uh, those two go hand in hand. But Paul is not telling us that it's okay to go and preach the gospel to make more money or to gain prestige in the community. He's not saying that motives don't matter because he would then be contradicting Proverbs 16 where it says, you may think everything you do is right, but the Lord judges your motives. See, underneath of this, Paul is telling us how to live like citizens of the kingdom of heaven that we already are. And as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven would we really get bent out of shape because someone's preaching Jesus but not preaching him for the right reason? And Pauling is telling us that as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, it's of a mindset that it's better to be considering the result that Jesus is getting preached. So he's showing us how to react when that happens by thinking like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You know, It's best to have a general balance between process and results. But the tendency is for most people to value process over results. When I was younger in the Lord, I used to get all wrapped up in theology and and how people practice their theology. And I would spend a lot of time trying to figure out which denominations got it right and which got it wrong. I used to welcome Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses into my home just to get them all tied up in their own theology. But I was doing the opposite of what Paul was talking about. For me, the means justify the ends. You see, when we value process over results, we might assume that we're getting a good result because we're using a process we think is right. If we don't get good results, then we'll tend to think it's the other person's problem. We tend to value our methodology over the results we get. The opposite is also true. We could get good results, but if we acquire those results that is in a way unfamiliar to us, we might devalue those results. It's called reactive devaluation. 
That's why some churches won't value your salvation if you weren't baptized, while others won't acknowledge your baptism if you weren't submerged, (laughs) because the process you used wasn't the one that they think is the right way. See, I didn't care about the results I was producing. I cared that I knew more and that I was right, but my motives were wrong. This came to me in a moment of prayer when Jesus asked me, Bill, what are you really doing? We have a lot of questions for God. Sometimes he asks us questions. The rest of the conversation really had no words. It was a spiritual conversation. I don't really know what he said or what I said. All I know is that after that moment, I stopped valuing process over results so much. It's to seek more of a balance. After that moment, I decided Jesus was more important to lead people to Jesus, to move them closer to him, to point to him as the answer for their problems. They would come to know him as he truly is. That's the result I now look for. So I don't care as much that people are wearing the wrong clothes to church. Steve Coleman. (laughs) I was going to say that anyway. I come and he says, Bill, you're a little overdressed for New Hope Chapel. (laughs) I don't care if they're singing the wrong music or worshiping in the wrong way. Now, I do care if people make a claim about God that's not supported by the Scriptures. I do care if people claim Jesus said or advocated something that he didn't say or he didn't advocate. I don't let everything pass. I just let a lot more pass than I used to when I think like a citizen of heaven. The citizenship attitude even extends to how we react when people are trying to make us suffer, when they talk about us behind our backs and so on. Paul tells us that others were preaching Jesus just to increase his suffering while imprisoned. And he shows us how to think about things like that. And he says, what does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true. And that I rejoice. See, if we do judge the motives, then we have to go back to Proverbs 16. And I ask you this question, who judges the motives of people? Who judges the motives of people? God does. (laughs) See, when I go like that, you say something to me. Again, Paul's not saying it's okay okay to preach the gospel for selfish ambition. He's, He's not even saying we're supposed to go root these people out and remove them from ministry. God will do that in his time. He judges motives. Now, of course, before you come to correct me after this service, I'm not saying if they do something illegal or immoral, we should stand by and do nothing. Paul wasn't talking about those people. He was talking about the people who are using the name of Jesus for rivalry, for envy, for selfish gain. I worked closely with a pastor years ago, and uh, he would confide a lot in me. And one of the things he said, which caught my attention, he gets a lot of people in his office. He says, sometimes, Bill... They're in conflict with each other, and then at some point they'll start quoting Scripture to each other. He says, when I do that, I get underneath my desk, (laughs) using it for the wrong reason. Look, I'm with you in your own disgust and frustration that this even goes on. But when I remember which kingdom of which I'm a citizen, then my thinking turns from anger and frustration to pity and sorrow for those preachers. For at some point, they will have to stand before God and account for their motives. And perhaps they might even have to stand before their congregation and resign in disgrace and in tears. But you know, Jesus is going to ultimately win anyway. Who knows, some might get saved along the way, and that's why we hear about the parable of the wheat and the tares and why they're not torn out for fear that others who are benefiting from this 
might still come to know the Lord. Early in my walk with the Lord, I asked a lot of, well, stupid questions. I asked why God didn't fix all the denominations. He replied that he didn't come to die for denominations. He came to die for me. So I've attended many different denominational churches, and I found that many were preaching the name of Jesus. Each had its own emphasis, usually a passage of Scripture upon which they based almost everything, but I still learned a lot. Paul is telling us to remember what is essential. If there's one statement that Jesus made that I think creates more uproar in the world, it's this one here, isn't it? That I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. There, there was a time in my life where I kind of wished he had never said that, because that's always that you are you you're not inclusive. You know, there's only one way to the Father through Jesus. That's what he's saying. There's no other way to get to the Father except through Jesus. This is this is the, probably the strongest claim he's making. Irritates a lot of people. There's only one way to the Father, is through Jesus. But Paul is saying, but there are many ways to Jesus. See, the Father works in mysterious ways. The Father will use whatever process he wants to use to bring people to his Son. And that's why Jesus says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What process will the Father use to draw people to Jesus? Any process he wants to. You mean even people who are preaching Jesus for selfish ambition? Yep. Because the Father will use any process He works in mysterious ways. This is what Paul is telling us. Many ways to Jesus, one way to the Father. But for some reason, in the church, this this notion gets extended and there's only one way to Jesus. We've been to churches where some wanted us to redo our baptism to fit our requirements, their requirements. Others are requiring us to be able to speak in tongues. So when we look at this passage in Philippians, We see Paul basically saying Jesus is so important, his name is so critical, it doesn't really matter how they get there. You see, we have to remember in Genesis 50, verse 20, it says, even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. Sorry, I got these slides mixed up a little bit. So, as a citizen of heaven, it's important to know your rights. The ultimate bully, our enemy, the accuser, the deceiver, the destroyer. He will come at you using fear. He will slap you in the face with fear. He will try to intimidate you in order to create anxiety, to create doubt, false guilt, insecurity, or worry. And remember, when he comes after you, he's messing with the wrong guy. He's messing with the wrong gal. And so how do we respond to that? as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So read this with me. I am a citizen of heaven. That's who you are. So when this happens to you, when he comes at you, here's what you do. And what I'm getting ready to tell you, I've made copies of if you are interested in this over there on the table. So here's what you do first when the enemy comes at you with his fear and intimidation trick he tries, his bully tactic. First, smile at him. This always throws him off his game. He hates it when, he smile, when we smile at him. What, what does he want us to do? He wants to cower in fear and worry. But you smile at him, it throws him off his game. I often use this when I'm sparring. I look all serious and I just smile and they don't know what's going to happen next. Then you say to this bully, I know who I am. 
I am a citizen of heaven. I stand uncondemned while you stand condemned. I am free. I am protected by an authority higher than you. You're messing with the wrong person. My big brother's name is Jesus, and he has already defeated you. He now lives in me, and I live in him, and his father also abides in me. You're messing with the wrong person. I kneeled before the Son of God, and I gave him my life. He healed me of all my sins, even of those which you are trying to remind me of right now. I am forgiven. He then sealed me with his Holy Spirit for his pleasure and purpose. I kneeled, and he healed, and he sealed. Now there is nothing you can wield towards me, around me, or against me that will defeat me. I am already victorious in Christ. So step off, you no-good dirtbag. Take a hike, you trickster. You have no place in me. You have no power over me. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. I live not in fear. I live in love. So as we pray, the worship team can come forward. Heavenly Father, most gracious King, Lord God, heaven of hosts, who is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, our Savior, our Redeemer, our love, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege we have to be called citizens of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, you would continually remind us of who we already are in you and the power that you've given us to live in peace, in confidence, and compassion. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.